Welcome to the First Baptist Church Keller Sermon Podcast. Each week we make available sermons from Pastor Keith and our staff on our website, fbckeller.org. And on iTunes, search for First Baptist Church Keller TX in the iTunes Store or in the podcast app on your mobile device. And now here's our pastor, Keith Sanders. Let's take our copies of God's Word together now and our hands and open to the book of Romans. The title of the message today is The Gospel of God. And the book of Romans has been called the most influential book ever written. But the truth is it didn't start out as a book. It is rather a letter written by the Apostle Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, to a group of believers in the ancient city of Rome, most of whom he'd never met. Now the book of Romans has been the instrument that God has used to draw countless souls into his kingdom for the last 2,000 years. And I suspect uh, that includes many in this very room. It's not just individuals that God has used the book of Romans to draw. The, the entire Protestant Reformation, driven primarily by men such as Martin Luther, uh, were convicted of the truths of the book of Romans concerning the nature of salvation, and that inspired them to seek change in their churches. Countless other awakenings and local revivals were sparked and driven by the teaching and application of these chapters. John Calvin wrote of Romans that it is, quote, the doorway to the treasure of all the scripture, end quote. The Swiss theologian Frederick Godet wrote of Romans that in all probability, quote, every great spiritual revival in the church will be connected as effect and cause with a deeper understanding of the book of Romans, end quote. And that is why we study it. That's why we're here. That is what we seek. A great spiritual revival in God's church, First Baptist Church of Keller, that would lead to change in our families, our city, our state, our nation, and indeed our world. As we start this journey this morning, will you commit to join me in prayer? This task is too great for me. I think that's why I've waited until I'm almost 50 years old to even attempt to preach through the book of Romans. It's Doctrines are so deep, it's applications so rich, and yet it's what we need. Let's read together. Romans chapter 1, the introduction, verses 1 through 7. Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh, who was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the Spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his namesake, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ, to all who are beloved of God in Rome, called as saints, grace to you, and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading and the understanding and listening of this, his word. Now we're going to discover as we make progress through this book, there's one word that is repeated over and over. In fact, there are several words that are used multiple times, but, but one comes to our attention right away, and that is the word gospel. Many of you will know that the word gospel, literally translated in the English, is good news or a good message. The Greek word is euangelion. Even in the English language, we can attach the prefix EU to most nouns, and it means a good form of that noun. Um, angelos is where we get the word angel. It means message or messenger. 
So you put them together. Euangelion is a good message. And the good message, of course, is that Christ died to save sinners. And the book of Romans is almost universally regarded as the most complete summation of the gospel message and of all Christian doctrine in the Bible. Its overarching theme is justification by faith. Justification by faith. That, that's a theological term, but you need to know it. It's really a legal term. It's simply this, that the righteous, rightful judge of the universe, Almighty God, can pound his gavel and declare a sinner forgiven, clean, whole. That's what happens when a person believes on Jesus. He is justified in the eyes of God. But Romans is not simply the purview of theological intellectuals sitting in the ivory tower. Like all of Paul's epistles, there's a long section in the book of Romans devoted to the practical application of doctrinal truth in the everyday lives of believers. And so it's a rich book. It's a relatively um, short book um, compared to uh, other books of the Bible, but it is full of truth and it's going to take us, by my estimation, about two and a half years to get through. And so we need uh, patience, we need wisdom, we need strength, we need listening ears and attentive spirits. Well, the first thing that we see here in this introduction is the steward of the gospel. Paul identifies himself as the writer of this letter. He says, Paul, a bondservant of Christ. Now, you know Paul's biography. He was a man who grew up in a town called Tarsus. He had dual citizenship in both the Roman Empire and in Israel. Uh, he was a religious Jew and a cultural Jew and a Jew by genetic pedigree. He said he was from the tribe of Benjamin. He was a Pharisee of the Pharisee, as touching the law blameless. He said he was more zealous for the law than all of his peers. He was on a career trajectory to theological fame. That was until he came face to face with the risen Lord Jesus on the road to Damascus. He was on his way to persecute Christians. He thought he was doing God a favor by putting down this little sect of people that they call themselves Christians. But of course, uh, Jesus spoke to Paul and said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he was never the same. And he never got over that moment. And for the rest of his life, he devoted himself to the will of Jesus Christ. And it was the Lord's specific will for his life that he would become an apostle, a messenger, one sent out to the nations, to the Gentiles, though he himself was a Jew. And that's how Paul thought of himself. For the rest of his life, his biography, his credentials, his pedigree meant nothing to him compared to the surpassing joy of knowing Jesus Christ and making him known. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, we, we read this, don't we? Remember there was a disagreement in the church at Corinth about who was the best preacher, who was the most important apostle. Paul shuddered to think that they were comparing each other rather than looking only to Christ. And so he said this, this is the way any person is to regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. In this case, moreover, is required of stewards than one be found trustworthy. He says, first of all, think of us as slaves. That's what the word bondservant means. We've kind of uh, tamped it down and diluted it a little bit, but that's what the word means. The word doulos in the Greek means slave. And Paul says he was a slave of Jesus. He used to be a slave of sin. But Jesus purchased him out of sin's marketplace 
by his own blood and made him one of his own. And now he serves willingly his new master, the Lord Jesus. But he also viewed himself as a steward. And he viewed all of life as a stewardship. In fact, we teach that here, that all of life is a stewardship. A steward is one who manages property rightfully belonging to another. That plays out in our lives in a number of ways. Our homes, our families, our own gifts and abilities, our own health don't belong to us. They're on loan from the Lord, and one day we'll give an account of those. Well, Paul says he had a specific stewardship and that he was a steward of the mysteries of God. That is, he was a steward of the gospel, and he was to take that gospel and do as much good with it as he could until he died or the Lord called him home, and then the Lord would hold him into account for that life. A steward is accountable to his owner. And so if you're going to be accountable to your owner, you need to know who your owner is. And Paul identifies God as the owner in verse 1. He says, Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel belonging to God, the gospel of God. Now, we don't often say it that way in today's church. We say the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. But the gospel is rightly the gospel of God the Father's as well, because it is God's the Father who loved the world, according to John 3, 16, so much that he sent his only begotten son into the world. In fact, the most often repeated word in the book of Romans is not gospel, it's God, 153 occurrences. And Paul always viewed himself as first and foremost, a slave of Christ and a servant of God entrusted with the greatest message the world has ever known. Now, Paul viewed himself though as one in a long line of men that God had used through the years leading up to this important historical event, the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And that leads us to our second point, which is the promise of the gospel. The gospel did not begin on the first page of the New Testament. The gospel has been in the heart and mind of God for all of eternity. Look at verse 2. Speaking of this gospel of God, he says, which he promised beforehand through the prophets in the Holy Scriptures. The book of Hebrews says almost identically the same thing, that God in times past has revealed himself through the prophets in many portions and in many ways, has now revealed himself in his son, Jesus Christ. And Paul described himself here as an apostle. Now that word apostolos means a sent out one. There are many people in the world today claiming the title of apostle. If you were here for Brother Justin Peter's seminars, you know that he taught us rightly that uh, the apostolic age is over. There were only 12 apostles, and with the death of the last apostle, the canon of Scripture was closed, and there are no longer true apostles in the world. Because the criteria for apostleship in the New Testament was several fold. Number one, you had to be an eyewitness of the resurrected Lord Jesus. Number two, you had to be chosen directly by Jesus to be one of his sent out ones. And thirdly, that choice was manifested by the ability of these apostles to perform signs and wonders. Well, the apostle Paul meets all three of these criteria. He saw the resurrected Christ and interacted with him on the road to Damascus. At that moment, Jesus told him he was to be his apostle to the Gentile world. And we know through the book of Acts that the Apostle Paul was able to perform these signs and wonders, bearing testimony that he was a true apostle. But before there were apostles, there were another group of people in the Old Testament called the prophets. A prophet is one who speaks to the people on behalf of God. We typically 
typically think of a prophet as one who can know the future. And oftentimes the Lord did reveal to the prophets what he was about to do. But technically speaking, a prophet is one who speaks to the people on behalf of God. Now, a priest is one who intercedes to God on behalf of the people. And the Bible tells us that Jesus fulfills both of those offices. He is the prophet. He said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is hand, just as John the Baptist did. He's also the perfect priest, as we saw last week, interceding and intervening on behalf of the people through his own sacrifice. But unlike any prophet that ever existed and unlike the apostles, he's also called the king of glory. So he has three offices. He's the prophet, the priest, and the king. But the prophets preceded the apostles. They proclaimed the Messiah was coming. Men like Elijah, Jeremiah, Isaiah, and many others. John the Baptist is sometimes referred to as the last of the Old Testament prophets. You probably have a blank piece of paper between your Old Testament and New Testament in the Bible. And that blank sheet of paper represents several hundred years of history in which heaven was silent. God didn't give any new revelation during that period. There were no prophets sent out until John the Baptist was born. And even while he, when he was in his mother's womb, the Holy Spirit was upon him. And when he was born, he was different than the other boys. And uh, he went out into the wilderness and his clothing was camel's hair and he ate wild honey and locust. And he spoke in the spirit and power of Elijah, the scripture says. And his message was simply this, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He was the forerunner of the Lord Jesus. He's the one who made the way for the Messiah to come. But all of these prophetic messages ultimately pointed to the Lord Jesus Christ. All of the Bible is about Jesus. I want to remind us that every time we start a new study of a new book of the Bible, I want to say this. Jonah is not the hero of the book of Jonah. David is not the hero of the Psalms. Solomon is not the hero of the book of Proverbs. And the Apostle Paul is not the hero of the book of Romans. The Lord Jesus is the hero of all the Bible. All of it points to him. As Dr. Criswell used to say, it is the scarlet thread of redemption that runs through every book of the Bible. Our own Baptist faith and message of 2000, which is our adopted doctrinal statement, says of the scripture, in the very first article, all scripture is a testimony to Christ who is himself the focus of divine revelation. We see that beginning in the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible written by Moses. In fact, the first book of the Bible, Genesis chapter 3, we read what theologians call the Proto-Evangelium, which is the first telling of the gospel. God the Father had come and he had found that Adam and Eve had sinned and violated his prohibition of eating of the tree. And the serpent was there who had tempted them. And God pronounced a curse on the earth upon humanity and upon the serpent, but in the midst of pronouncing a curse, he also preached the gospel. And he declared that the seed of this woman, which is the coming Messiah, would ultimately crush the head of the serpent. He would defeat death and hell. That's the first telling of the gospel. Many of the Psalms are messianic in nature, foretelling the work and person of Jesus. Perhaps the clearest messianic prophecy is in the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 31 says, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, that there's something coming in the future from Jeremiah's perspective. When I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, 
Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, write it on their heart, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Remember when God brought those slaves out of Egypt, he redeemed them out of Egyptian bondage. For 40 years, he provided for them in the wilderness. He led them, gave them a leader in Moses. He gave them the law, the Ten Commandments. And he said, if you will obey me, I'll bless you. I'll bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. And what happened? They disobeyed. They sinned. They broke their covenant. And God says, days are coming when I'm going to establish a new covenant. He was speaking there of the coming Lord Jesus. And so the, the prophet's task was to declare in the past that a new covenant was coming. John the Baptist's task in his day was to declare he's here. And the apostles' task, now that Jesus has ascended into heaven, is the same task that we have been left from the apostles, is to declare to all the world that Jesus has come and Jesus died for sinners. That is our commission, to go into all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and Son and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe whatever commandments he's given us. But with that background of the apostle Paul, we know that the book of Romans is not about Paul. So let's look a little closer at the focus of the gospel, our third point, verse 3. Speaking of this gospel message that he's been entrusted with, he said it is concerning his son, whom was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh, who was declared the son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord. The focus of the gospel, and therefore the book of Romans, is undeniably Jesus. His son, he calls him. Paul's driving ambition in life from the moment he was converted was to know Christ more intimately and to make him known to the world. Paul also viewed himself, as I said, as, as one in a long line of others that God had used to bring this message. What he's really speaking here in these verses is the mystery of the incarnation. The fact that the God of heaven, our creator, would leave the glories of heaven and empty himself, Paul says in Philippians, pour himself out, condescend, come down and become like one of us. And Paul says he was born as a descendant of David according to the flesh. Now that would be very important to his Jewish listeners. We don't know a lot about the founding of the church at Rome. We can speculate that it was made up of those who were converted on the day of Pentecost, recorded in Acts chapter 2. Remember, Jewish people had come from all over the world, including, we believe, the city of Rome, to celebrate Pentecost. And it was at that time that God chose to send the Holy Spirit with power. Peter and the others preached the gospel, and thousands were saved and baptized. Many of them stayed in the city for an extended period of time, being discipled and trained up, and then they went back home and they established churches in their cities where they lived. And likely that's how the church at Rome was established. And it would have been important for Paul to establish Jesus' credentials as the Messiah. Every Jewish person knew and was taught that the Messiah had to come from the seed of David. God had given King David what we call the Davidic covenant, which is that there would always be an eternal king on the throne that was one of his descendants. 
This could only be fulfilled in the Messiah. And he says, Jesus was declared to be the son with power. Yes, he met the genetic pedigree, having been a descendant. By the way, there are two different genealogies in the New Testament of Jesus, proving that he fulfilled that criteria of the Davidic covenant. But he was declared to be the son, that is the second person of the Trinity, through signs and wonders. And one in particular, the greatest proof that Jesus is God is the resurrection. Paul says, concerning his son, who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh, but was declared the son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. The reality of the literal bodily resurrection is essential to understanding the doctrine of salvation. Now, for many of you, you'll take that as a matter of course, but unfortunately, that simple statement is controversial in our world today, even among people claiming to be Christians. There are people claiming to be Christians that says we don't need to tell the world about a bloody cross. That will offend them. And we certainly don't need to talk about a resurrection because these people are intellectuals and they think scientifically and that will turn them right off. Well, do you believe the Apostle Paul believed that the literal bodily resurrection of Jesus was essential to the gospel? Well, he certainly did. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15 in your Bibles. Nearly the entire chapter is devoted to Paul's argument that the resurrection is essential to the gospel message. He begins by saying that I delivered to you, he's speaking to Corinthian Christians, as of first importance, what I also received that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. So according to Paul, we have missed an essential element of the gospel if we fail to tell people that Jesus is alive. And then for the rest of the chapter, he makes arguments of the implications if that were true. If Jesus is not resurrection, here are the implications of that. I'll just begin reading in verse 12. Paul says, Now if Christ is preached that he's been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there's no resurrection of the dead? But if there's no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. Your faith also is in vain. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God because we testified against God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. Now here's where he gets to, into it. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You're still in your sins. Paul could not be any clearer. If Christ has not been resurrected, we're all still lost. The message we've been teaching is false. We're all liars. And if that's true, then what the intellectuals say about us is true. We're wasting our time. He says in verse 19, if we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are all of all men most to be pitied. Aren't you glad he doesn't stop there? Verse 20, he says, but... That's a very important conjunction. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, that's Adam, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ will all be made alive. The resurrection is essential. Paul always talked about the resurrection. He never got over it. So the summary is this, Paul understands the gospel to be that Jesus died in the place of sinners through what we call substitutionary atonement, the just for the unjust. His 
inherent righteousness is imputed to us through faith. And we now have a right standing with God because of what Christ has done. And that's why he writes halfway through this book of Romans in Romans chapter 8 verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Paul's understanding of the gospel is that at the point of justification, we surrender and submit ourselves to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And that was the hallmark of the Apostle Paul's life to the day he died. Total and complete surrender and submission to the Lordship of Jesus. He says, it's not I, but Christ who lives in me. Now, what are the results then of that kind of gospel? Well, it begins in verse 5. He says, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his name's sake, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. We have received, he's speaking of himself, the other apostles, obviously. We've received two things. Number one, grace. Paul was keen to remind himself and others that he was not saved because God saw his resume and was impressed. He was saved the same way the worst sinner on death row is saved, and that is through the grace, the free gift of the Lord Jesus. He didn't deserve it. Grace simply means unmerited favor. Paul never forgot it. He never got over it. But beyond that, he gave him a reason for living. He gifted him and gave him a calling, and he called it his apostleship. He was sent out by God with this message specifically to the Gentile nations, not of his own accord, Paul often had people who questioned his apostolic credentials because he wasn't one of the original 12. But Paul was keen to remind them that this wasn't his choice. He was on his way to fame and wealth in his chosen vocation, but God stopped him and had a different plan for his life. But he also wants us to see here that that calling and setting aside is true of every believer to one degree or another. He says, verse 5, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among the Gentiles. That's Paul's specific calling. And then he says, verse 6, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. Every true believer has been called out just as surely as Jesus called Lazarus from the tomb. Lazarus, come forth. We weren't pursuing him when we were saved is the point. He came to us, as Paul says, when we were dead in trespasses and sins, totally unresponsive to him. In fact, we were running in the opposite direction. We were rebels, enemies of God. And he pursued us and he caught us and he used the means of someone's telling us the gospel message. And the Holy Spirit took that gospel message and quickened it to our heart and convicted us of its truth and of our own sin and of his righteousness and the judgment to come. And we bowed our knee to his lordship and he granted to us faith and repentance and he breathed life and he opened our eyes and we call that his effectual calling. And that is true, not of a, just of apostles, but of every Christian, but it gets better. Not only are we called by the Lord, not only does he pursue us, but he gives us a title, verse seven, to all who are beloved of God. I try to remind our, myself when I'm ministering in this church, that you people are the beloved of God, the apple of his eye, those that Jesus died for. I have no right to not give my best efforts for you or to put you down in any way. 
You're the beloved of God, not because you deserved it, but because he chose to love you and put his affection upon you. And then he gives you one other title, and it's almost more than I can believe. He says, you're the beloved of God, called as saints. Now, if you came from another faith tradition, this is going to be more than you can bear. <laughs> but this is what Paul says. If you're born again, if you're saved, you're a saint. You're set aside to be holy unto God. St. Dallas, St. Chris, St. Caleb, St. Melissa, all of us are the saints of God making up the family of faith. And he's building this church and his church writ large on the foundation stone of the prophets and the apostles with Christ as the cornerstone. And every subsequent generation we're adding run after run and one day the church will be completed and I take at that moment the trumpet of God will sound the dead in Christ will rise and Jesus will come for his own. And the only hope we have to be a part of that resurrection day is justification by faith. Despairing of anything good within us. That's what Paul had to do. Running to the cross, clinging only to Jesus and his finished work through his perfect life, his literal death, his literal resurrection, and his substitutionary atonement. Let's pray and thank him for these truths. Heavenly Father, Lord, we bless you today. We thank you for the gospel. It is, in fact, good news. Because, Lord, we're born in a state of bad news. We're sinners by nature, by choice. We're rebels, dead in sins. But, Lord, you're so wonderful and loving and merciful. You weren't willing to see us die in that state. At just the right moment, you sent your son into the world. He took on a human body, tempted in every way we are, battered and bruised and abused, and whipped, crucified, literally died on the cross and rose again, victorious over death, proving his sonship. Father, I thank you that Jesus fulfilled all the messianic prophecies to the letter. He's who he claimed to be. And so today we proclaim him as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Lord, I thank you for every believer in this room who rightly took of the supper today, remembering the high cost of our sin through the blood and the body of Jesus and remembering the great love wherewith you loved us. Thank you, Lord, for the love of Jesus. Lord, I would pray if there's even one in the sound of my voice who knows you not, that your spirit would take this message that's been proclaimed today, quicken it to their hearts, breathe spiritual life, grant them faith and repentance. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you again for listening to our broadcast. To learn more about First Baptist Church in Keller, Texas, or to hear more sermons by Pastor Keith and our staff, visit us online at fbckeller.org.